This Week at Hope Point. My dad said one phrase to me at age 17 that was hugely um, transformative. He had experienced a great move of God in his church over a weekend conference. And he came home at the end of the conference on Sunday night, knelt by my, my bed, which he liked to do to pray. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, whatever else you learn from me, understand that life is to be lived in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Everything that truly is of God that he calls you to do cannot be done apart from your yielding your life to the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. I think I I need to say in advance of this sermon that even I think it's a little weird what I'm going to say today because it looks like it it might be about me uh, rather than preaching a biblical text. And if you're here today and someone invited you with the promise that this guy really preaches Bible text verse by verse all the way through today, I think I sort of apologize to you. I'm really not apologizing to God because I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do, but it's different than the norm. Um, the reason I'm going in this direction is a couple of reasons I'd like to explain that is somebody asked me a few months ago to sort of give a brief talk um, about what m- were the major shaping influences in my life. And they found it very helpful, the crowd that I spoke to found it very helpful. They said, well, it's nice that we get to know you, the person that is behind the words that we hear on Sunday. How did you get here? How did God develop you? Um, if I were to die unexpectedly, I hope this is what will be said about my funeral because it has nothing to do about me. It has everything to do with the people and the God who, who poured into my life. This sermon is about them helping me uh, make it through a very tough world. You know, I tell my staff all the time, pick a pace to finish the race. That is, you just can't go 90 miles an hour all the time. And, and there is a little bit of that within me right now that I'm grateful that I had written these words down on a piece of, really, a, um, an envelope a few weeks ago and I could expand upon them because with the events of life lately and my own call of teaching here and many other places, I have been a little um, uh, needing in, to readjust the pace So I'm doing that in front of you today uh, with a talk that I really do love because I get to glorify God by by the 10 major shapers of my life. Number one life-changing influence would be my mom and dad. One of the best dad statements in the Bible comes from Joshua 24. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Because my mom and dad devoted their house to, the, to God, it, w- it was a very safe place. It was a w- very welcoming place. That even if I was not there, my brother was not there, my friends still named our home as the place they wanted to hang out on the weekend because of the way that my mom and dad were. When I'm doing marriage counseling, I'm always telling the young couple that to design your life in such a way that your house is a castle. And at the end of the day, you lift up the drawbridge and nobody can get over the moat. All the forces that worked against you at work and whatever else, they can't, inside that house is safety. And in my house growing up was, 
was safety and consistently. Whatever I saw my mom and dad at church, I saw them at home. There was no confusion like, what is this, what is this double life? One of the things I really loved about my mom and dad is over in dad's chair over there and mom's chair over here, besides them, there were always open Bibles and not just open, but marked full of different colors, underlines. And even though I didn't turn into a Bible reader much later than that, it was beginning to plant a seed in my life that mom, my mom and dad were reliant on a daily word from God. And it made a difference in, in their life. My dad said one phrase to me at age 17 that was hugely um, transformative. He had experienced a great move of God in his church over a weekend conference. And he came home at the end of the conference on Sunday night, knelt by my, my bed, which he liked to do to pray. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, whatever else you learn from me, understand that life is to be lived in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is everything. That whether you go into ministry, I was sort of thinking about it a little bit, or you go into a secular career, everything that truly is of God that he calls you to do cannot be done apart from your yielding your life to the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So every Sunday, even when I pray here, God, and when I pray before I stand up here, I asked God to please, I asked him, I said, forgive me of my sin, flood me with your goodness, and fill me with your spirit that you might bear fruit through your word. Every Sunday I say those things to God. Forgive me of my sin, flood me with your goodness, fill me with your spirit so that I might bear fruit through your, your word. And that all started with dad's admonition when I was 17. My mom, uh, that's who I'm really like. My dad was sort of a serious guy. It's the way those chemistry engineer majors can be, sort of nerdy and not fun. And uh, my dad did major in chemistry at, uh, at uh, Wake Forest and went on to uh, a profession in that. My mom was, was free-spirited, um, like me at times, things coming out of my mouth that really weren't planned. And um, she was a delight. And I told her, at, I said at her funeral, the greatest gift she ever gave me was two ears and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day after school. She felt, made me feel so valued, listening to my day, listening to all of my, my chatter. In the morning before I went to school, it was always a glass of Carnation, Carnation Instant Breakfast and cheese toast, and she would always read the newspaper or the big events to me. She said, you need to know about the world. She turned me into a very globally-minded person very early in life. I cared about what was going on outside of of my life and outside of the United, United States. I think God used that to develop my love for, for missions. My father, what I sort of got from him was this, this unceasing gratefulness of I can't believe that God would be so kind to me for, like I said to somebody the other day, that you get to take a warm shower in the morning. It's, it produces massive worship for me. Why? Why do I have that? And my dad, you can read his journals when he was, you know, thinking back upon his childhood, he later wrote journals about how he enjoyed hopping on the back of Nellie, his horse, and riding through the, the fields and the woods of Kelly, North Carolina, 20 miles inland of Wilmington. And he, he said the delight that he experienced of the Lord's creation on the back of a horse. And then later in life, he would just, we would turn on the, fi the gas logs on the, the fire, and he would marvel of God's kindness. Not like a marvel that he had worked real hard, that we deserve gas to come in our house to logs. It was the gift, the kindness of God that we would have heat in the middle, in the middle of, of the winter. Dad taught me an incredibly hard work ethic 
He worked me a lot harder than I cared for growing up for him. And, uh, but he, he also said, you can make money working too. And I had the best lawn care business for a middle schooler uh, in Lyndhurst, our subdivision growing up. Uh, I cut a lot of grass and he always met me halfway with whatever I wanted to purchase. My biggest purchase was a trampoline, $300. Uh, I made 150 and my dad uh, kicked in the other 150. He really taught me how to work hard. He gave me a love for work. Um, third, uh, second thing that was a major force in my life was encouragers. First Thessalonians or Hebrews ten twenty five. Consider how to stir up one another to love and especially good works. And then First Thessalonians five fourteen. And we urge you, brother, encourage the faint hearted. So when I talk about God sending encouragers in my life, and it's really one of the greatest gifts He's, he does. I'm not talking about people who just come and. And, uh, you know, and, and, and throw sugar on you and, and flattery. Um, I'm talking about people who really encourage you to use your gift. People who have said to me, I, I think you're gifted in this area um, and you need to develop that. And then when I would use that gift, they would say, hey, that was a good use of your gift. And then when I was pouting and I said, I'm tired of using my gift, people said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. No, no, you should use your gift. Somebody encourage me to serve Christ. Encourage me that, that it's worth it. It's worth it always to the very end, no matter what, to keep using, using your gift. Um, believe it or not, my first encourager uh, in terms of gifting was a first grade teacher named Miss McGinnis who said to me uh, in front of mom, uh, he has a writing gift and I think he will spend his life trafficking in words. He should write. He should influence through writing. And I remember not a lot about my childhood. I remember Miss McGinnis doing that. Um, I got a youth minister, um, a Dylan, uh, when I was 16 years old. And he's the guy. I would travel with him everywhere while he was speaking uh, in our areas around our North Augusta. And sometimes we would pull up to a place where he was speaking. He said, I don't think I'm going to speak tonight. I think you're going to speak tonight. And would put me in places where I had to learn how, how to communicate Every Monday night, I was in the home of Bob and Sue Griffin, so I'm very grateful for all the D group leaders for our youth, uh, because it was not necessarily professional ministry, but it was volunteers that changed my life. Sue Griffin, at age 76, tells me, ever since I was 16 years old, I have not missed a day praying for you. So very, very encouraging to know that people are praying, praying for me. Even yesterday, a very, very hard day for this church, and for, for me as, as a communicator, a teacher, to speak at, at uh, Justin O'Neill's funeral. Um, I, uh, you know, when you speak at funerals, I normally apologize to the family in advance for anything that I might say that didn't feel like I understood their pain. And, uh, and then that level of pain is something that you just know that you, there are really no human words for, but human words are required. So, but if you just looked on my phone yesterday, just the barrage of people who are telling me, I'm praying for you, you can do this. And, and um, I, I just really appreciate people who held, held my, I wrote one of them yesterday. I said, thank you for holding Moses' arms up yesterday because I, I really doubted just about the whole process of speaking yesterday. Um, the Revelation series has been difficult. I love it, glad we're in it. Um, started planning to do it seven years ago, and this was the right time, but 
You guys need to understand that pretty much the book is such a weird book, thank you God, it's such a weird book that I sort of understand it each week about six days before you do. So I'm learning the book enough to teach it and uh, thank you for encouraging me. Uh, that's been, a, that's been, um, been quite a challenge. The third uh, changing, life-changing influence in my life is the Bible. Love this verse from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The decrees of the Lord are firm. They are sweeter than than honey. The first time I ever began to taste and see that the Lord is good for me personally, where I fed myself was in college. I had others spoon feed me all the way up to that point. But, you know, you get to college like these students there right now, they have no idea what's about to hit them. My goodness, temptations galore, no accountability except your own determination of that. And, and you can either go this way and get pretty wild or you go this way. And, you know, for me, you don't have a wild crowd. You can get lonely. So I went to the Clemson bookstore and bought a pocket New Testament and, uh, and Cliff Notes on the Bible. Uh, Cliff Notes had gotten me through all the literature courses I'd ever taken. Sorry, you English teachers. I know that I think I may have even signed something. I didn't do that, but I repent. But um, I read Cliff Notes on, on really what the Bible's about and then began to read the New Testament. There was a little stone wall across from my business classes at Clemson, Serene Hall, and anytime I had a gap in between the classes, I would read the New Testament until, until I, I, I finished it. And if you want to know why I teach the way I do, um, specifically how about why, uh, whether it's a strong word of encouragement or it's a strong word of confrontation, it's because it was at college I fell in love with truth. And I, I will tell you, there's nothing more important in my life than truth. And I... I I know it changes the world, and there's, there's no progress made until truth is, is declared. I love truth more than any, anything else. The fourth influence in my life was Southwestern Seminary. Um, it's interesting how, we get, how I got there. Lisa and I were dating in college. I'll tell you more about our marriage in a second. But we dated in college. We graduated in May of 1983, and we got married in July of 1983, and two weeks later, we loaded up a U-Haul and drove a thousand miles to Fort Worth, Texas to go to, to Southwestern Seminary. It was a great experience. Um, we had a, we rented our house, rented for $190 a month, our apartment. And um, I drove a downtown bus route and uh, Lisa worked in a private school. And I remember filling out our income taxes that first year, our gross income was $12,500 and still has savings, it's amazing. But I also remember when Lisa finally got a job in the public school system and she pasted on a, on a sticky note on our refri- refrigerator when she got the job, how does 15.5 sound? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it just sounds great. And, uh, but you know, the most important thing that happened at Southwestern Seminary was I, uh, I took a class on preaching by Dr. Joel Gregory. They don't call preaching preaching at seminary because everything's got to have a complicated word. The, theologians get paid by the syllable. So it, it's, it's, called, it's called homiletics. Uh, it's from a Greek word, compound word, homo, lego, 
which homo means the same, lego means to speak. So the goal of biblical preaching is to say the same thing as what the Bible says. Uh, you know, as John MacArthur says, the goal of preaching is, you know, you're, you're just the waiter. You go to the kitchen and you get it and you try to get it to the table without messing it up. So that's what homiletics is, to, to not add or take away, to, to remove all personal biases from the text. You say what the text says, whether you, it's comfortable saying it or not. And he taught me how to study. He taught me how to see where the scripture, what it really said, not what I wanted it to say. And uh, I remember um, the first time I preached for him, I was so proud of my sermon. And uh, it was a two-point sermon. We had to preach in 11 minutes. Can you believe that? Oof. And uh, I remember after I preached, uh, he said, had deep voice, said, class, uh, everyone has heard Pastor Smith's um, sermon today, Mr. Smith, did you have a second point? Because I, I didn't hear it. And um, so I told him what it was, and he said, well, I can tell you next time, add a transition statement into that to let us know you're moving into your second point. A transition statement that's like an 18-wheeler climbing a mountain pass at midnight where everybody on the hillside says, he's shifting gears. He just talked like that. But he used to always tell us, he said, I, I hope you will always see, see my eyes peering in the window of your study to see if you've done your work for that week. And he was not a really attractive man, so that was pretty, a, pretty, spooky, pretty spooky thing. But this is the work he was asking us to do. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best. To, present, your, to uh, present yourself to God as, as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Dr. Gregory really believed. He knew, just as the scripture says, it is God's intention to change the world through the foolishness of preaching. You can't get any more biblical than that. He will change the world through the foolishness. And it's called foolishness because divine, the mind of God is going to be spoken through quivering, unreliable human lips. And that's, how, that's God's plan to change the world. Wow. It's the foolishness of preaching. He helped me believe in preaching. Number five. Oh, transition tape. Now I'm going to number five. <laughs> Marriage. Wow, what a... What a great influence. 38 years now, married to Lise and 39 in, in July. And this is a great tribute to her. So deserved. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. A lot of that verse, this verse really does describe her. She, is, she never has brought home wool and flax, uh, so that doesn't really apply. And she, she doesn't really bring food from afar. Sometimes she's, instead of shopping at food lines, she will go all the way up to, to public. So I guess that would be, that would be afar. Uh, I don't recommend this for any parents in, here in this room, but somehow it happened in my situation that 
Lisa's parents let her go out with it. She was 14, and I was, I was 15, and just crazy and mature. Didn't really know how to treat a girl in high school, so we sort of rolled it off them. And then we kept dating through Clemson, and I got a little bit better. And um, so, you know, enough for her on, you know, on, one, on a bad day for her to say yes when I asked her to marry me. And um, it's interesting. I asked her to marry me in a church, um, an empty church. And uh, it's interesting how we would end up then spending the rest of our life serving serving the church, but she's everything. Um, she's, she's, um, I, she's the reason I hadn't quit. Um, she has this little, little sneaky thing of saying, like every time I tell her I think I'm done, she'll always say, well, well not, not yet. And, I, and I, I want her to, and like it keeps working, like, like she's been saying that for 35 years. And so... So I, I said, because not yet gives me some relief that there will be a yet. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just, there's nothing really natural within me to, to lead, nothing natural, within me, even really to speak. It's not, a, it's not a natural thing I'm called to do. And so, you know, there's a time in life where we switch positions in the car forever. She's the driver, I'm the passenger. It may have something to do with my driving skills, but I think really what happened was there was a day where, Lisa knew that I, I wanted to do a little bit more work on my message, maybe respond to a text, phone call. And she's so good at telling me when enough is enough that church has invaded our home too much or our private life or our down life. But apart from that, she, she shares my call exactly as her own. She's always been an unbelievable cheerleader. She, it uh, doesn't matter how many t- trips I've taken overseas, how many conferences I've spoken at at crew where I've been gone over the weekend or counseling appointments away from the house. She is just elated, elated to, for me to thrive. You know, the Bible says that all of us have a cross. You know, you know Jesus says that in, in, um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that, um, you know, Take up your cross daily and follow him. Do, do you know what that means? I mean, you ought to know what it means <clears throat> because you're supposed to do it daily. Your cross is whatever discomfort you experience in order for you to do the will of God. That's your cross. Pain, whatever pain you encounter, you would not have encountered that pain if you were not doing this thing for Jesus. That's the cross. For Lisa, her cross is sort of related to this. Like we are one. Yeah, that whole verse in Galatians, Genesis, get my book, Bible books right. <laughs> you know, and the man and the woman brought together became one flesh. Well, the bottom line is when I'm up here in a very marital sense, she's up here too. She's saying this with me. And so my spiritual gifting is more of a prophet not my natural gifting, but my call and my dedication to Scripture is to be urge, confront. It's not hers at all. And um, so there are things that I say, many things I say, most things I say, she has no idea I'm about to say them. And so she hears them when you see, hear them. And they are, they're, they're hard on her spirit. She's not embarrassed, but they're just, it's nothing easy. And so she has you know, for all of our ministry, taking up the cross of 
whatever is necessary for me to get ready. On Friday nights, I just have to give glory to God for her. On Friday night, she asked me every Friday night, are you finished? You ready for Sunday? And I tell her every time, yeah. It's really, it's a weird, yeah. She knows that between then and Sunday morning, there's going to be like five hours of, and she always says, what are you doing in that? I said, I just want it to be more linear, more palatable, more logical, more get to the point, more efficient. And she is so, so tender and patient. And uh, I mean, she has lots of construction criticism in between the services, between just a minute ago at 9 and 10.30. We met in the green room and she said, I would leave that part out. So she doesn't let up on me, doesn't let up on me. And when I appear, if if ever I appear loud, she said, well, you you were a little bit, I felt like anger, like you appeared... I know you were trying to emphasize, but you appeared to be angry. So why would you say that? <laughs> so she's really helped me even in, like, you know, say, she says, she always tells me the Bible is loud enough. The Bible is loud enough. You don't have to add to it. Stay in your lane, bro. I spoke to VCOM, the medical school students, this, this week over at Jimmy and Gretchen Evans' house, and I talked to them about a lot of things, and some of it was marriage, and that's what I said. Marry someone who will be a cheerleader for you, a servant to you, who has such a consistent character that when life falls apart, they don't. And that's what she's given me. She's very, very stable. Stable girl. Sixth life-changing influence was Archie. Again, if you're new here, I'm glad I get to tell you about him. Our Bible verse forever has been this. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. I really hope the students who are graduating can hear this. Man, this is a life-changing. One who, tell me who your heroes are, and I'll tell you what your life will be like in five years. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so for me, that was Archie. When I pastored, began pastoring in 1986, I pastored in, um, um, in, in, in a little county seat of Georgia called Appling. Um, we were 13 miles away from a town of 7,000. Uh, in, the, in the northwest part of, of Columbia County. Well, wherever the people lived, it was about 20 miles away. On Wheeler Road was a Presbyterian church pastored by a guy named Archie Moore. And 10 years my senior, but God put us together. And apart from Lisa, he's the reason that I have a ministry because he saved my life from deceit and secret sin. We entered into a relationship, uh, spiritual accountability, but I didn't get real and honest with him for six years until after we started that relationship. Men can do that. I don't know what you women do, but men can do that. They can talk in generalities. Generalities will send you to hell. Generalities will just not solve a thing. And so six years, that was when the internet first started coming out, AOL, You've got mail. All of that came out. And so the internet became a little bit more accessible, which meant that pornography became accessible. And 
I could just tell on, there were moments in my life when I was under great stress that that was going to be a temptation. So six years into our relationship, I went to Archie and said, well, listen, I'll tell you, brother, you, you know, we've, we've prayed for each other to be pure for six years, but I want to tell you what's really going on in my life. I said, I, I can go there and I have gone there on the internet and I need help. I need, I need you to be a guy who's going to ask me every week if necessary, every day. So we made a commitment uh, almost 34 years ago that we would never lie to each other. And I've always said that if, there's, if, if, if people were to ask me, do you have uh, any uh, reason that your ministry is, um, you have to, has there been any reason for success in your ministry, whatever success looks like? I think I would say because I've chosen not to live a lie. It's not that I'm not, I don't sin, I'm just not lying about it. And um, so Archie, you know, the first time I told him, this is who I am and this is what I'm capable of, he stood up from across his desk and said, I have never loved you more. Wow. And that's when I discovered how good small groups are and community and getting, wow. Because you really don't know the love of Jesus until you hear it like that. And let me just say, Archie and I, we live by this principle. Forgiveness comes from Jesus, but freedom comes from a brother. You got to tell your stuff. You got to tell your stuff to a brother or a sister to a sister. Jesus will forgive it, but to really get free, you got to talk about it to someone uh, that God would bring into your life. And this is, our, this is our bar of soap verse that we love. He who conceals his sins will not prosper. That's our fear and trembling part of it. But whoever confesses and renounces those sins will find mercy. What a great word. So every time I would share with him struggles in my life, he would take me to the cross and he would say something like, Father, I thank you that Christ has died for the sin and, and uh, Richard has been made righteous by the blood of Christ. And help him to fear ever hiding anything because he will not know the mercy of the Lord. Whew, perfect counsel. The seventh um, life-changing influence in our, in, in, in our journey was adoption. Could use a lot of verses to talk about that. Maybe it's sort of an odd one. You might not really relate to your story. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is basically what the Ford Motor Company used to say when Ford used to say, I think their mantra was Ford has a better idea. That's plagiarism because God invented it. God has a better idea than you. Our idea was to have you know, kids, like you know, get married, have kids. So that's what it's supposed to work. And we couldn't have any children until 10 years after our marriage. You know, and for a woman with all of these maternal longings, that was like utter indescribable pain for me as a guy trying to get my career and answer the needs of the church. You know, I couldn't feel that other than, you know, as, as a husband, I'm going to walk with you in this. But I know she knew I couldn't feel it, but, you know, we go from one doctor to the next to the next, all sorts of all sorts of tests, and, and so, uh, but God's ways are higher than our ways, and so it wasn't the doctor route. It is for some, but it wasn't for us. We were in a little Southern Baptist church, and you can't be a part of one of those and not have Wednesday night prayer meeting. So after Wednesday night prayer meeting, uh, my chairman of deacons brought me to his house, 
And he said, uh, my wife and I just got a phone call from a friend who lives in North Carolina, and she's pregnant. She's 33. She already has a child, and she can't raise two being single. Uh, and, um, and she's looking for Christian parents, and she asked us if we would talk to you and Lisa. And um, so it may have been that night or the next night, I made the most awkward phone call of my life. He gave me her number, and it's odd to call... A mother who courageously, preciously has chosen to keep a child. And you're making a phone call to basically say, I want your baby. And yet at the same time to try to be tender with that, you know. So I told her a story. I, I told her, I said, um, I said, there's a story about a little boy who was playing with his mother's handkerchief. He, she said, don't do that. He continued to and he got an ink spot right in the middle of the handkerchief. And he threw it away and went to bed and tried to hide it from his mom. And when, she, when, it, when he was sleeping, she found it in the trash. And the next morning when he got up for his breakfast, it was laid out right in front of him. Except overnight, she had painted yellow petals around the black spot in the center and turned it into a daisy, a beautiful flower in the middle of the, the, the silk handkerchief. And I told that birth mother, I said, that's what you've done for us. I said, you're looking at, you think this is a mistake. You think this is a, like something that's a, a penalty. Uh, you've made a courageous and beautiful decision and God's going to turn a flower. He's going to make a flower. Um, he's going to make a flower out of what's going on in your life and we're going to be with you every, every step of the way and that's how God brought, that's God, that's how God brought Anna in, into our life. One other thing for those of you who doubt them, uh, I couldn't tell us in the first story in the first church for keeping them over, but I never care about how long I keep y'all over. <laughs> but <clears throat> the, um, when Anna was born, she was, you know, we got the call. I was wearing the beeper and hey, mom's going into delivery, uh, uh, into labor. And so Anna was born with a pneumothorax, a hole in her lung. Doctors know how to do that. It's not that it's minor. It's just they know how to, what to do. So Anna had to stay in the hospital about 10 days in the NICU with antibiotics. So, which, so we panicked. You know, we panicked. Rather than seeing that God might be in this. Well, let me tell you how he was in it. The lawyer that we hired to represent us in that city, we had to get him out of the phone book. So when I called him and said, do you do adoptions? He said, yes. But I think I could ask him, do you build race car engines? Yes. <laughs> You know, do you, have you ever cliff jumped, uh, base jumped? Yes. So anyway, by the time Anna was born, nothing was ready legally. He was a complete bum. And so um, f from the Greek word bumeo, which means unprepared person. <laughs> so <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Bum. So... So I did all of this legal work and there were not signatures here and signatures there. So God put her in the most beautiful place Anna could be, not in a foster home, not back where the mother, right next to Aunt Lisa, watching her in the NICU for 10 days while I got all this legal stuff done. And I was doubting God that he calls this medical incident and he was helping when I, when I thought he was, he was not. Eighth changing thing in our life, life changer was cancer. This I could talk about. I, I, I did this talk for an entire night, Thursday night with the VCOM students. Uh, you don't need to know all of it, but my life has, my cancer journey started in 92. 
294, a lot of pain in my right hip, uh, non-missed diagnoses from Augusta physicians. Not really necessarily their fault. It's one in a million occurrence rate, chondrosarcoma. Started on the top of my hip in an area called the acetabulum, growing down the front of my pelvis called the superior ramus. And so there's just not a lot of orthopedists that see it. So they didn't see it. But by the providence of God, he, the Lord allowed all of their mistakes to get me frustrated and to go to Emory where I was soon assigned to the chief of orthopedics there, a musculoskeletal oncologist named David Monson. And I was, I, I was irate about all the doctors and their mistakes had, they had made. He said, don't be mad. If they would have removed the tumor, they would have removed your leg. He said, I've only done 12 of these. They're very hard. And he saved my life and saved my, saved my leg. On the way to surgery on September 25th, 1994, I'm reading my Bible just, you know, Psalm 50 one day, then I mean Psalm 51 next, and I get this verse. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The next day I'm to, get a, I'm to have a major surgery on bones, and I get a verse on bones. God's been so kind through, through all the years. The, uh, the cancer journey sort of continues with all four hip surgeries and all the residuals from that, and a metastatic cancer in 99 in my lung. And then last year, you guys walked through prostate cancer. Obviously, a much less severe cancer, much more treatable than the sarcomas. But still, nonetheless, a decision had to be made. I didn't know what decision to make. Because the doctor, the urologist, basically, you have three options to go with. And based on your history, it's a little difficult to know. But it's up to you. Well, finally, um, I didn't know what to do, and I went to my small group, which was a brand new small group here at Hope Point in my life. This is an advertisement for small groups. It's great for uh, uh, coming to medical answers. <laughs> so if you're not in a small group and you have to make a decision about prostate cancer, get a small group. And um, so I went, and there was an orthopedist in that group, which is really not really very good at urology. But he said to me, I know somebody who does a procedure called brachytherapy and it sounds like maybe that's what you should do. And he got a point with me and him in three days. I made the decision to go that route, but then began to doubt myself, was that the right call? And uh, the day after I, I said, yes, I'm gonna do that. I was full of doubt, was that the right way out of the three ways? I went to get my hair cut and everybody knows me, I'm not very picky about hair. I have apps on my phone. Whichever organization, whichever business has the least waiting time on the app is who I go to. And so I went into Sport Clips that day at 9 o'clock and in walked a doctor from this church, different from the other guys I've mentioned. In walked a doctor at 9 o'clock. And I'm still, you know, just completely undone about the, why, the wisdom of my decision. I sit down in the chair. The girl cuts. I said, would you mind if I have a friend come sit on that stool next to me. And so the doctor comes and we're talking about my prostate while she's cutting my hair. <laughs> and he said, listen, the choice you made, that's the smartest man I know in medicine. I went to school, medical school with him. And six years ago, when my dad got prostate cancer, we went with that procedure. And that happened, and that happened on Wednesday morning in a, a hair place that I rarely go to. The kindness of God. Finally, oh, this is not finally. Oh, my goodness. 
Hunter, you might have to make a decision on this one. I got two more and I got to finish. Parenting. Gosh, I, I really talked long. Sorry. Let me use a verse that I use and expand it now. First Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, and help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Why would I use this about parenting? Because I found out that when you adopt a child, you have to raise it. <laughs> and this is what they turn into. Sometimes they are disruptive. <laughs> and then sometimes they become disheartened when they make mistakes that get them in, their life gets in trouble. And then, that, then they all of a sudden feel very weak. And it just makes you as a parent become very patient. And you begin to make statements like this. We're never going to work on this again. We're never going to go down this road again. We're never going to deal with this again. Do you have, this is settled. You understand from here on out, it's obedience. You got it. And then all over again. And so I can tell you that, you know, God has taught me more, grown me more in patience and prayer. Sometimes curled up at three o'clock at night on the couch crying out to God, solve this, solve this, solve this, solve this, oh God. Please get her home before dark. Please get her home, which means, you know, she's in danger. I know she's in danger. You know, get her home before dark. And God has, and we're, we're so, so thankful to him, so thankful, so thankful for her. But God did ask me over and over again, I need to let, Richard, will you let me be your savior in this? Not, she cannot be your savior your child cannot be your savior. You must find your joy in me regardless of what happens in her life. I'm your savior, not your daughter. I'm your savior, not your daughter. And finally, the church and the Holy Spirit. The verse, Acts chapter 13, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I love the Lord's church. I love the Lord's church here because... This is when the gospel went global. The gospel went on the water, on the Mediterranean, over to Greece and Europe and then to England and then to the United States because of the Holy Spirit speaking in church while they were singing and praying. So really, really quickly, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit has done in the local church in my life. Number one, writing sermons. Billy Graham says, my lips are clay until God's people pray. I don't know how to write. I'm not naturally, I don't do this. This happens when you pray and the Holy Spirit moves in my life. So praise God for sermons that come out of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what happens in this church when that band comes up here to sing? When he takes the sermon and the songs and joy erupts, the Holy Spirit turns a building that's nothing to talk about into a place of magnificent glory. The third thing that I love what the Holy Spirit does in the church is how he would use me, a very sinful man, the most sinful man in this room, how he would use me and bring glory to Jesus because over and over again, God just says to me, all I need you to do on Sunday morning is show up. Would you just show up? In all of your unworthiness and fear, show up and let the Holy Spirit flow. And finally, the reason I love the local church and how the Holy Spirit works is all that God has done in this church, in missions around the world, because someone, while in a worship service, got a vision to go to an inner city or around the world, and now we have 280 church plants in South India. We have a team going to Alaska, and maybe uh, maybe 35 other partners around the world, and all of them were birthed 
by the Holy Spirit speaking to somebody in his local church. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.